Moncrief with Energlaze on News Talk. Now, despite having a health system in this country, along with all its flaws, Ireland has had a tradition of healing ailments that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. The methods can vary and all too often the knowledge is transmitted orally. So Cecily Gilligan set out to at least put some of that on paper. Her book is called Cures of Ireland. Cecily, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Sean. Thanks for having me. Is there, like, the, in, in terms of, like, folk cures, is there a distinct difference between people who use herbs and, say, somebody who's the seventh son of a seventh son? No, I don't think so. I think they're all part of the cure tradition of Ireland. But um, the seven sons and seven daughters, there wouldn't be that many of them around. And it's obviously, it's dying out, uh, unfortunately, because just the birth rate is falling. But they're still out there in rural Ireland. I talked to about um, nine people who had that, who were seven sons or daughters. And then herbal cures and faith cures, they're the main body of the traditional Irish cures. And of that, uh, faith cures would be the more prominent, I found. About 80% of the cures I investigated and 20% were herbal cures. We had huge herbal knowledge in this country, but we've lost it, um, I reckon, since famine times Mm. with the displacement of all the people and movement away from the land and then obviously, you know, the arrival of modern medicine and the growth in that. So there's much less herbal cures, but they still exist. They're still out there. Right, Okay. And and a lot of this knowledge is passed down orally, uh, obviously. So would it tend to be... Mothers to daughters, for instance, yes. that kind of way. Yes, it can be. Yeah, most of it is passed on orally, which is also one of the reasons it's not very well known about. So I'm hoping to try and redress that with my book. Uh, but a lot of it is passed on within families, yes. And often it's passed, the gender of the cure pass changes each time. So a man might pass it to a woman and then the stipulation is that the woman passes it to a man. Oh. And then, so that's one of the stipulations, not in every cure, but in many of them. And then uh, also that the within families, a lot of them are within families, but you might pass them to a niece or a nephew. Um, and people think it's generally old people that have cures, but um, people tend to hold on to the cure until they get old. And then when they feel like they're not able to make it anymore or they're worried about their future, they pass it on to maybe a younger member of the family, mm. the next generation. Would they then tend to keep it secret? Yes. If, if you just rock up and say, how do you do that? They're not going to tell you. <laughs> no, no. I've talked to a lot of people. I've talked to over 93 people uh, in recent uh, recent times in the 21st century that have cures that are alive and well in use. And almost all of them have secrets. And that's fine. I respect that. And mm. that's just, you know, it could be the secret prayer. It could be the secret ritual, how they do it. Now, they're very simple things. You know, it's not very complex generally, but... That's part, um, part of the part and parcel of the cure. They've you know been instructed don't tell, keep it a secret. And I think it is um, helpful to the survival of the cure that it is kept secret. And people would say to me, if everybody knew about it, well then it might disintegrate or disappear. People take their cures seriously and they're very respectful of them. And sometimes they don't even like to talk about them. And that whole thing about uh, word of mouth or passing things on in the oral tradition, you know, you can't really go on social media or people don't like to advertise their cure in any way. Generally, it's something that's, you know, you make inquiries. I need a cure. I have asthma. Does anybody know of a cure? Family, friends, relations, somebody Mm. will probably give you a name and then you pursue it that way. So then, if it's you know if it's passed down within families, at any point we're able to get an idea how many generations of a family a cure might have been within. Yeah, well, it's hard to know exactly, and people, of course, we all forget when we go back a few generations, we've forgotten who's our family. Yeah. But uh, yeah, people have said to me three, four, five generations. You know, they might trace it back. Um, so one man I interviewed on the North Sligo coastline, he has a a cure for a thing called the Shilly Shaw, which is a, a very a very anglicisation of a Shinna Sheehan Bajor. And that means like, it's basically, it's kind of a real severe sore throat. 
um, and he's kind of a prayer cure. He was very secretive about how he made it. But anyways, he reckoned that was in his family. Uh, it was passed down along the male line of the family only and it was in his family for four generations he was aware of. So, you know, they're yeah. going back hundreds and potentially thousands of years. It's very yeah. hard to know the, the, the truth of it. Yeah, and so it's say in the case of that man, was it just a prayer cure? Were there any herbs involved? Uh, that was totally a prayer cure. Mm. No, a lot of the a lot of the cures would be um, prayer cures. And for example, if I might tell you quickly, there was another man I talked to also in Sligo, because that's where I'm from, and in rural Sligo, an older man, and he had a cure for the heart fever, for any kind of heart problems. And how he made that cure was you had to, when you come to him, you phone him and you say, you know, I need a heart problem, can you help me? And then you come to him and you have to bring pinhead oatmeal. He's very specific about that. Mm-hmm. And then he puts that into a glass, a glass of pinhead oatmeal, covered it with a handkerchief, and then he places it on your body in five different places around your your around your chest and your back, sort of the upper part of your body. And as he's placing it on your body at these five locations, he would say a blessing. So it corresponds to the blessing. He repeats that three times. Three is a really important and powerful number in the traditional cures. And then after that, he still held the oatmeal in place on your chest over your heart and he said a number of prayers, 15 prayers. So he said lots of prayers. Mm. And um, and then the interesting thing about that cure was at the end of the cure, when he, t- when he took off the handkerchief, if, if there was something wrong with your heart, there would be a little hole would have come in the, some of the oatmeal basically would have disappeared, the little indentation in the side of the glass. And he knew then there was a problem with your heart and you had to come back to him then three times, if not more. And then he believed that when you, every after he'd done the cure, a number of visits for you, at uh, some day the, the oatmeal wouldn't move. Maybe after three visits the oatmeal would have remained intact. There'd be no indentation mm. and that means the heart problem was resolved. Yeah. The prayers, given that potentially how old they could be, are they necessarily Christian prayers? Yes. Generally what I found the cures were Christian prayers. Um, you know, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the mm. Creed, the Glory Be, the Catholic prayers that we're all a lot of people would be familiar with. So that's the prayers they use. Some people now told me that they use Latin prayers and maybe some have Irish prayers, but I didn't come across that too often, but certainly Latin prayers. And Latin would have been, I think, until the 1960s, the Mass was said in Latin in Ireland. So the cures very much reflect the society that they're in or that they've come from. So Ireland obviously has been a very strongly Catholic country. So it's very much connected to that. Yeah. Um, Even though it probably, going back a few hundred years, it might have been different. And certainly the cures... Some of them maybe potentially come from pre-Christian times. Yeah. Now, the herbs, um, is there a difficulty nowadays in the 21st century to find all the herbs that people might need? Because I assume they're they're getting them wild. They're not yes. going down to Tesco to get it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, generally they're collecting them in the wild and about mm. 20% of the cures I investigated for humans and animals because a lot of these cures are for animals also mm. were wild herbs. Yeah, and there can be an issue about collecting them. So people would have said to me that they collect them, they try to collect them in places where they think there's not much traffic or in fields or in lanes or in ditches that there wouldn't be dust on them. Yeah. They try to get them uh, but that is a problem in the future that, you know, because obviously in ta- agriculture is quite uh, strong in Ireland and, you know, the, sometimes the herbs are a little bit, or the, the wild plants maybe don't get as much attention as they deserve. Yeah. Um, and for example, one woman I interviewed in North Leitrim, she's a very well-known cure for um, shingles. And what she does, she was a young woman and she went out into the local fields and lanes and she collected 13 different plants and herbs, probably quite common 
well, they were quite common. Now, she wouldn't tell me exactly what they were, which was fair enough. She collected her herbs. It was a very old cure, had been in a uh, few generations in her village. And then she brought them brought them home and then she mixed them with, uh, simmered them with unsalted butter, a made a little herbal butter. And then that was put into little containers and stored in the fridge. And then you might contact her and say, I've got the shingles, can you help oh, me, please? Right. And then she would post it to you or you might pick it up or whatever. Yeah. So that would be a herbal cure. Now, as I understand it, uh, most people aren't, they're not doing this for money, but it is kind of important that something changes hands. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I discussed that in uh, quite detail in my book. Uh, generally, I found that people, yeah, I don't think money is a factor for the traditional cures. People do it, you know, because a lot of people are very generous and that's keeping the tradition going. Some people uh, did charge a small fee, but that would be the minority. But the exchange tradition is very strong and that's the belief that you receive something so you give something. Mm. And in the past, you know, it can be something small. It doesn't have to be anything expensive. In the past, people gave a bag of potatoes, sugar, tea. Nowadays, they give you a bottle of wine, a box of chocolates, a cake. Uh, phone credit is given as, yeah. as a gift. <laughs> so it varies. And then sometimes people get are given money. Some people will not accept money. Some people will accept money. And I found that uh, quite a lot of people that do accept the money will give it to charity. They might keep some for themselves and mm. a lot of it they pass on to charity or 100% to charity. Yeah. But is giving something, if you like, part of the process? Yes. Almost. Yes. Some yeah. people would have been very str- strong on that. They would have said it's part of the process. It's also... Uh, makes the person that's receiving the cure being proactive and part of the healing process if you want to say it like that because mm-hmm. they have to think I'm going to see this person now what would be a nice gift to bring to them right. uh, and one man uh, a seventh son that I interviewed he said you know it's part of the process it's important that they play their part by giving a little exchange but he said it could be something very simple they could make me a loaf of bread they can go to the beach and pick up a few shells and give me some shells and I'd be very happy it's the thought that counts like most yeah. things in life right and is there a limit on, can you, you know, contact a healer and they'll say, no, I can't do that. Now, I think people would be aware of skin conditions and ringworm and a few things that would probably be common for healers. But are, are there things that they wouldn't touch? Yeah, well, it would depend what your cure is for. But uh, generally people, I, I found that people tend to have a cure for a specific problem. Maybe it's headaches mm. or it could be the mumps or it could be uh, oh, um, thrush is, is foul mouth. That's that's another very common one. So obviously you contact the person if you have that problem or that issue. And uh, they're very, like for example, the woman that I interviewed um, that had, she was an older woman, she was in Roscommon and she did, she did a cure for, she calls it head fever, which is basically like migraine or a headache. Mm. And she would say to me that um, if, uh, if someone comes to me and I know there's something more serious you know, potentially that's something yeah. very serious. She'd always say to me, you know, you have to go back to your doctor. You have to yeah. talk to your, do- your doctor about this matter. So I, my experience of the people with the cures, that's what I would call them, is that they're just very regular, ordinary, practical people. And, you know, if they talk to someone and they see that they need other support or other help, it might be psychological support they need, they would advise them to go to a medical practitioner, of course. Yeah, so uh, say, uh, and yeah, mental health issues, would, would that be something they'd address? Yes, uh, it wouldn't be something that, that I found that people with cures address uh, mm. very much. But I would think, what I would say is that, um, because I do think that our, and probably from, you know, working on this book for many years now, uh, I do think our physical health is interlinked with our mental health, you know, because obviously if we don't feel good, if we're low, if our energy's down, we're more likely to get sick. That's mm. my understanding of it. I think most people probably can see that in themselves. Yeah. So I think the part of the cure process is a psychological thing. So you might go to, um, 
you might go to someone, for example, the man with shingles in Donegal I interviewed. He said that a lot of people that came to him, he would also talk to them initially before he, he had a prayer cure. He he touched them with something uh, and said the prayer. But uh, he said he felt there was a psychological component to a lot of the shingles. People might say, oh, you know, I've got the shingles, but, you know, my husband died a few months ago. Yeah. Or I've had this tragedy or this trauma or this illness, whatever. So things are interconnected. And I think part of the reason the cures continue to survive is that they have... There's a psychological and a spiritual component to them. So you might go for a physical problem, but you go often you go to someone's house and they listen to you and they're nice to you and they show compassion and they show understanding. And uh, so you talk about what's concerning you. So and then often there's a cup of tea involved, you know, an mm-hmm. Irish chat. So and that's very kind of reassuring, very helpful. And I think it helps to kickstart the healing process and to help the cure to work. Mm. And similarly with the prayers, you know, prayer is very important to many people. Or even if, you know, you don't pray, if they say, let's say a few prayers together or you say a few prayers afterwards, it's a very positive kind of uplifting thing. And it's trying, it's kind of trying to help yourself in some way. Yeah. And uh, the people you talk to, did you ask them what their attitude was towards mainstream medicine? And, and, and you know, did, those, did they see those two things complementing each other or... Were they, you know, uh, at polar opposites? Yes, no, Sean. The people who would get cures are just ordinary, everyday people, like you or I, you and I could have a cure. And they would very much avail of modern medicine themselves for everything, you know, for most things. But uh, they would see, they wouldn't see any conflict of interest between the two. Mm. Now, occasionally people would say, would say to me, um, for example, one woman I talked to, a seventh daughter, she just said with the ringworm, her experience, and she was a young woman, her experience was that the ointments you might get in a chemist uh, seemed to exacerbate the, the ringworm and she felt it was better just to go straight for the cure and get it and it would clear it up much quicker. Yeah. So other people have said similar things about thrush, uh, but that's a very simple, that's just breathing into the mouth. It doesn't involve anything to take anything so but I would say no the people with cures are very positive towards modern medicine and not dismissive in any way and the two the two things obviously exist in Irish society Mm. and um, people respect the two traditions and obviously cures are a very small part of of, you know medicine or healing in Ireland but they are very old they're rooted in tradition there's a lot of respect out there for them they've survived for hundreds of years for some reason um, primarily I think because they do work what I say is I don't believe they work every time and for everybody but I do believe they work and that's one of the reasons why they survive and that's what people will say to me um, you know people wouldn't come to me if it didn't work the word get around and they would say you know it would die out so yes Yeah is it <laughs> is it dying out though do you think is it getting encroached upon by the modern world Well it is but actually probably it is of course it is and that we've had we probably a lot of cures have been lost Mm. but the interesting thing and as I have found from my research is that a lot of them still exist some of them still exist and that's fascinating because we're in the 21st century you know we're a very modern affluent society huge technology huge medical advances and then people are still willing to you know go to somewhere maybe in potentially rural Ireland and meet someone who has a cure and get the cure and give it a twirl give it a whirl Um, and often maybe they're aware of the cures and they want to try it or sometimes people have said it's a last resort. They've tried lots of things. You know, they have asthma maybe and they've tried lots of things and their child still isn't healed. So they say, well, we'll try this as well. It can't do any harm. Mm. So people have different motivations for trying cures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so they are surviving. But, they, you know, I, I say their balance is delicate between, you know, survival and extinction. And I hope my book will help, you know, towards the survival of the cures and document what's here. And in 100 years time when people 
read my book or look at the research I've done, they'll say, well, that was happening in the start of the 21st century. Yeah, so indeed. Do, how did you find them, by the way? Was it all word of mouth? <laughs> yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> it was a grim laugh there. <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, I basically, yeah, it is all word of mouth and it's family, friends and uh, neighbours and work colleagues. And I, I just went, came or came, step by step. I went out and I asked, I asked and had a few, a few leads. Um, I actually had done research in this in the late 1980s when I was in university in Cork. Uh, I was studying social science and I did a, a final year thesis on it, the old traditional cures. I interviewed people mm. and then I came back to them uh, around 2005 and I restarted back into this and I interviewed those people, re-interviewed those other people, those people from the 80s and are their successors, people that had uh, survived. And then also I just kept looking for more people. So I tried to get a broad understanding. And when I would talk to someone, I would say, do you know of anybody else with a cure? Yeah. And nearly everybody would say one or two other names. Yeah, someone down the road, they have this cure, that cure. So it just was very slow and gradual. And then a lot of my research was based in the northwest of Ireland where I live. But I also travelled to other parts of Ireland to look for cures and to visit some holy wells. And cures that had died out, like I went down to the southeast of Ireland to find a cure for skin cancer because I couldn't find that one like that in my locality. And that was a herbal cure that I, I found and documented there. Yeah. Did, uh, did did any or many people refuse to talk to you? No, actually. Very few. Very mm. few. So uh, I, I was just always respectful of people and gentle with them. And, you know, most people said nobody's ever asked me about my cure before. Or sometimes they'd say, I don't like to talk about my cure, but sure, we can have a wee chat and I'll mm. have my boundaries and that's fine. So, no, there was uh, there was very, very few that said, no, I just can't talk about it or whatever. So most people gave me a chance. And I said, you know, I won't. In my book, I don't... Um, I don't give people's names and addresses as such. I right, respect yeah. their privacy. I've generalised where they live and who they are. And I'm documenting more the overall picture of what uh, exists out there. And the phrase I use is guardians of the cure. I would see these people as guardians of the cure, passing them on to future generations. They've received them from former generations um, and mm. they're passing on to future generations. Yeah, the book is called Cures of Ireland. Cecily Gilligan is the author. Cecily, thank you very much. OK, Gurmila Magatslan. And a few comments on that. When I was a child, I had ringworm. My father took me uh, to a healer. She wouldn't accept payment, so my father fixed a broken plug for her. Ringworm went away uh, within a few uh, days. Uh, Another texter says, Does your guest know about the cure for thrush? My granny used to have kids coming to the house to get rid of it. The story is that she had the cure for thrush because she was born having never met her dad. Could be a family tale, but wonder does it have any merit? Never heard of that one before. Obviously, as, as, as Cecily uh, mentioned there, you could be the seventh son of a seventh son or the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter. And, uh, you know, that's generally taken to mean uh, that there might be an ability uh, of some sort there. I've never heard that one before. Uh, Peter says, um, kind of, I suppose, inevitably, I take the cure very seriously. Saw them in Belfast last year. Great gig, question mark. I don't know, Peter. I wasn't there. You tell us. Was it a great gig? Uh, that's, you know, the point. And and some sceptics, of course. Uh, someone says the secret to all these cures is that they don't work. Someone else says these cures don't work. A lot of impressionable people will listen to this and think they will work. They may, but I, or, or may not. I mean, we can't be legislating for, um, you, you know, you can't legislate for other people. It doesn't fool me, but it might fool other people who aren't as clever as me. Um, so, you know, let them make up their own mind. Maybe they will and may, maybe they won't. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. with Anna Glaze on News Talk.